Welcome to the Aerospace Engineering Podcast. My name is Reiner Groh, Research Fellow of the Royal Academy of Engineering, and on this podcast I have conversations with aerospace pioneers about new technologies at the cutting edge of aerospace design and research. This episode of the Aerospace Engineering Podcast is brought to you by my patrons on Patreon. Patreon is a way for me to receive regular donations from listeners whenever I release a new episode. And with the help of these generous donors, I've been able to pay for much of the expenses, hosting, and travel costs that accrue in the production of this podcast. If you would like to support the podcast as a patron, then head over to patreon.com forward slash aerospace. There are multiple levels of support, but anything from $1 an episode is highly appreciated. Thank you for your support. This episode is also sponsored by StressEpoch.com, which is an online hub for you if you're interested in aerospace stress engineering. StressEpoch.com provides world-class engineering services and online courses on the stress analysis of aircraft structures, as well as a free ebook and blog. No matter if you're a junior or senior structural analyst, StressEpoch.com provides you with the skills and know-how to become a champion in your workplace. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Three, two, one, zero. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Houston, uh, Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. Today I'm speaking with Alexei Matyoshev who's the co-founder and CEO of Nautilus, headquartered in San Francisco. Nautilus has set out to reduce global air freight costs through the use of large autonomous drones. Nautilus has moved quickly over the last couple of years to develop a seaplane prototype to serve as a technology demonstrator. The engineers at Nautilus are now moving ahead at full steam to design a land-based freighter drone based on a blended wing body. As the name suggests, a blended aircraft has no clear demarcation line between the wings and the body of the aircraft. Although distinct body and wing structures do exist, the wings blend smoothly into the body. Advantages of this approach are efficient lift generation that is aided by the wide airfoil-shaped body, allowing the entire aircraft to generate lift. This means that a blended wing body has better lift-to-drag ratios than a conventional aircraft, resulting in improved fuel efficiency. One particular challenge, however, is that a blended wing body does not feature a vertical and horizontal tail, and this makes controlling the aircraft particularly challenging. So in this episode of the Aerospace Engineering Podcast, Alexei and I talk about his educational journey to becoming an expert aerodynamicist, the technical details of the freighter drone Nautilus is designing, Nautilus's business model, and near-term developments that are in the pipeline. And for all of you young engineers listening, Nautilus is currently hiring for a number of roles, so if you're interested in working for an innovative, fast-moving company, then head over to their website, nautilus.co. But now, without any further ado, I bring you Alexei Matyoshev. Alexei, welcome to the podcast. It's great to be here. Thank you for having me. So before we started recording, you told me that you have an interesting story to tell about how you got into engineering. So now I'm curious, uh, how did you get into engineering and uh, where did you go to university? Yeah, so um, I, I graduated from Embry-Riddle Aeronautical University. Uh, that is uh, the Daytona Beach campus, uh, and I specifically went to that school uh, to to what I thought was going to get into the space side of things. 
so I was really always interested in, in the space shuttle and the space program and uh, kind of selfishly wanted to become an astronaut as well. But uh, I think after maybe about a year of doing research and going through my first year in college, um, I decided that I'm not competitive as far as my grades and it's just the, the resumes that you have to build to even be considered are a little bit more ambitious than what I had in mind uh, for, for a college environment. So <laughs> I thought maybe something a little bit more realistic for, for me would be uh, working as a systems engineer or propulsion engineer. I was really interested in propulsion at that time on the space side. And um, anyway, so I kind of had that feeling and I was really geared towards, towards space side. And then I did an internship uh, at Ball Aerospace uh, one summer. It was my sophomore year, I believe. And I worked really hard to get that internship. And uh, about like two months into the internship, the workload that they gave me, it was all complete. And um, I didn't have too much to do at that point. So, I mean, I started kind of uh, sneaking my way into meetings and trying to learn as much as I can. But um, what I kind of gathered after everything is just, I was working as a systems engineering position. So it's a lot of paperwork, but I was helping out writing some testing code for for a couple of spacecrafts. Uh, I got to see the Kepler Space Telescope to go through TVAC testing. But, uh, you know, it was, what I figured out, it was just not not as challenging as I thought it would be. And it was, a, maybe it was a bigger, you know, corporation was a little bit, you know, slower as far as the pace goes. But it kind of almost turned me off from, from space to the point that when I got from the internship, I uh, I really had to re readjust and reevaluate what, what I might be interested in doing after college. And um, I, I mean, I was interested in airplanes as well, but I, I, was, I wanted to be the guy who actually doodles the airplanes. And so as entering, you know, my third year in college, um, I took my first aerodynamics class and I just fell in love with it. Um, and then I also learned coming and talking with the teacher that uh, there's, there's not a lot of aero guys out there. I mean, there's aerodynamicists that do, you know, um, more internal flows, but as far as the guys that actually design airplanes, uh, it's there's not a lot of them and somebody told me it's something like a hundred of us in the United States and kind of being in the industry for 10 years maybe there's I think 40 to 50 of us that actually do uh, aerodynamics for aircraft which is not a big number <laughs> so it, it felt like a really char challenging career path but at the same time I just couldn't shake it off and there's something that I was really passionate about so at that point to kind of get my feet wet uh, I, I found a company in Norway, they're called Equator Aircrafts, um, you might have heard of them, they did like a hybrid electric propulsion and this was maybe maybe 10 years ago is when they started on it. And uh, I, I sent him a cold email, uh, the, the, the guy who was leading the project, and I, you know, I said, hey, I'm a student at the university, I'll do anything I can to, to, to help you guys out, just give me something to do. And at that point it was just a really key moment and what they were trying to to do with the airplane, it was going through preliminary design, and they didn't have anybody on the team doing aero. So uh, I must have been like maybe 20, 21 years old, and I was just going through design textbooks like crazy, trying to quickly learn it and then apply it to this airplane. <laughs> wow, that sounds challenging. It was. Uh, I was kind of sweating uh, bullets for a little while there because uh, here I was trying to you know design the wing, and frankly, I didn't know quite a bit of a lot of what I was doing, but enough that I was curious enough to, to read a lot and, and try to, to get through it. Anyway, ironically enough, um, going into my senior year, I helped design the tails and the wings for them and kind of get the airplane situated into what should have been a really good position. And in fact, it was a really good position. The airplane flew last year. Uh, nothing went 
poor, so the pilot was pretty happy with it. So uh, I think that was my very first airplane design. That's really cool. I mean, that's so. So remind me again: was that in your in your senior year, or was that the first project coming out of university? It was actually my junior year is when I got in touch with them, I believe. Oh wow! Okay, so you got some really cool hands-on aerodynamics experience early on. Yeah, yeah, definitely did. Um, and it, there wasn't anything wild and crazy about this airplane, so uh, I'm kind of glad that it was my first project. There was not, you know, too many challenges to figure out, but yeah, definitely got my few wets pretty early on. Cool. So I guess you know the the process that you described of of kind of going full on and trying to learn everything about you know that the the topic that you're currently studying or even working on. At least what I what I read in the media is is te- what I guess what tends to go on at startups that you're frantically trying to figure out a problem. So let's maybe describe what happened between say that first position and then now your your startup. What happened in between? Sure. So uh, the story gets a little bit more interesting. Um, so I was coming out my senior year, and at that point, there was a, a major aircraft company um, doing a, a very light business jet, and they were all the rage back then. And uh, this was maybe circa 2013, 2014, and Deja was going to buy 5,000 airplanes, right? So anyway, uh, they, they were on campus, and they were not in interviewing for any uh, aerodynamicists. They were mostly, you know, doing a lot of the CAD monkey uh, interviews, so systems engineering, you know, uh, design engineering, maybe a little bit of stress. And um, anyway, I, I just decided to go to an interview with them, and I did, and um, I brought the, the equator project with me to the interview. And, uh, you know, one of the engineering heads asked me, what experience have you had? And I talked to him, you know, the what, what I wanted to do was the space side, but somehow I just don't, didn't end up having as much passion as I wanted for that. And I said, you know, I've been kind of doing this this equator project, and he kind of saw that, and he saw the air work that I did for that. And ironically enough, they, they were not advertising, but they were looking for an aero guy. And uh, I just right place, right time, and I was, I think, the only one that day that had any type of aerodynamics experience that I could really showcase. So um, I got an interview with my manager at that time, and he hired me pretty quickly. And uh, it turns out when I got into this major corporation, mind you, this is one of the big three airplane corporations, the, the previous air guy just quit. So I walked into an office, there was two seats, and I was going to be filling one of them. And we were in the middle of this uh, this business jet program, you know, everybody's just running frantically, and here I am just trying to get my, my bearings straight. So uh, that was quite a challenge. And it, it took me, I think, maybe one year to, to start, uh, you know, talking intelligently enough about airplanes that people started to listen to what I had to say. But there was quite a bit of a learning curve, really, really head on. Nice. Okay. So, uh, so basically, then, you, then you, you started working at this company, and so now you're the founder of uh, of, a, of a new startup called Natalis. Tell me about Natalis's mission. Uh, what have you set out to achieve? Sure. So, uh, what Natalis is trying to do is uh, to to find this middle ground between a sea, uh, ocean freight, and air freight. And specifically, there is a 10x cost difference. There's something like a 20x time difference between the two methods of transportation. And so um, we, we're trying to reduce the cost of air freight because we are aerospace engineers by trade. So we started out with a solution looking more like an airplane uh, to bring the cost down to open up 
global e-commerce because one of the pain points, uh, if you've ever sold anything online, is to, to sell it internationally. Uh, and it's typically because nobody wants to pay the shipping cost. And also, it's a huge care for customers like uh, potential customers that we have, like large-scale logistical uh, operators like the Amazons of the world or JDs or Rockertons. So that's kind of the mission of the company. It's uh, not as sexy as supersonic flight. But we believe <laughs> it's a little it's a problem worth trying to solve. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and I mean, I, I'm sure that some of the aerodynamics challenges uh, in, in developing, you know, a drone are just as challenging as, as building a, a supersonic um, jet. So um, as far as I'm aware, you're based in San Francisco. And um, at least to me, um, living in Europe, San Francisco is famous for its uh, software based startups. So um, what has your experience been in terms of developing aviation hardware uh, from San Francisco? Uh, I think it's uh, the market is still a little bit early on. Uh, I think, but at the same time, I also feel an inflection point coming on as well. So, uh, if you, when we started the company, we did actually two about a year to year and a half of market research to make sure that we were on the right track. Uh, we we started first fundraising um, in 20, 2015, I think something like that. And uh, it took us about a year to fundraise. Uh, at that point, we were living in, in Florida, so we were traveling quite a bit between Florida and San Francisco. But the first reactions in 2015 was, uh, you know, aeronautics is still, it's, it's not a low-hanging fruit. Uh, and, you know, you need to raise lots of capital. Nobody in San Francisco really understood anything about it. Uh, so they're not subject matters experts, per se. It was not a hot market. I think at that point, um, Internet of Things and robotics were just starting to come alive a little bit, um, but it was still viewed as frontier tech. And people, where they were most interested was was space. And uh, the reason why they were interested in space first was uh, the microsatellite trend. So you could build a like a small satellite, get it up into space. It's expensive, but not as an expensive as certification of an airplane. So I think the first gut reactions that we got from, from San Francisco was just there's no freaking way you're going to find funding, at least not in San Francisco, for, for aeronautical projects. But there was some hope for space projects. Mm -hmm. And 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 what does the uh, space look like now? So I'm I've heard of I think another supersonic startup coming out of San Francisco. Has the situation changed? You know, five years later, or is it still quite difficult to get funding for aviation projects? I think um, it's getting a little bit easier. And what really happened I, in the last maybe year and a half to two is uh, Uber and uh, Uber stood up and said, you know. We believe that the future of transportation does involve these EV tall flying cars. And uh, a couple of billionaires started to take a little bit more interest in that stuff. Um, and, uh, you know, Joby Aviation, I think, was one of the first ones to, to show a full scale prototype. Um, and then that got some people in Silicon Valley excited. And so there was a better, I think, you know, with Uber, they saw that there's a customer now. And so I think aviation-based startups started to take hold. I think over the last 12 months, we've seen something like the number where we were, there's maybe 10 uh, in the United States, where at least in San Francisco working on this type of stuff, maybe now the number is closer to 60 all over the world. So I, I think it just really bloomed in the last year. It may be that we're in a hype cycle too. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I think that sector has kind of... Uh, yeah, mushroomed in, in recent years. I think uh, Airbus actually counted more than 100 startups globally. So I think that probably tells you that maybe not a bubble is forming, but something is definitely frothy there. 
Um, okay, so tell me a little bit about the evolution of Nautilus. So um, I read online that you started off with a sea-based cargo drone, but that you're now shifting to a land-based drone. So what was the thinking behind the switch from sea-based to land-based, and how far did you develop the sea-based drone? Sure. So uh, when we first penciled in uh, the program to go raise funding, what we felt was there's no regulatory environment for the operation of large-scale unmanned vehicles in, in the FAA airspace. And so we were trying to figure out a way. Uh, well, the second piece of it, too, was, well, certifying an airplane is, is really expensive. So a certification program would be maybe half the cost of development. So a Part 23 airplane, you know, a complex one might be like $100 million from pencil through certification, but the certification portion of it is $50 million. So VCs especially did not want to pay $50 million for certification because they also understood that that increases long lead time cycles and it's almost money being thrown away uh, because it's not directly used for product development. So. I think those two things, we, we try to figure out a different way to go about things because uh, we knew the product should exist in some shape or form. And that's how we came up with a seaplane idea. And the idea was originally that, um, well, we don't have to certify because we never fly through FAA airspace. So by being a seaplane, we would dock with cargo and ports um, and we taxi out into international waters, which would be about 15 nautical miles off coast. And then we do our takeoff run and, and you know, do our mission. And so at one, the moment we tweaked that, that concept to a seaplane, it felt like we completely just circumnavigated all of the FAA regulations. And um, I mean, there's been different forms of this uh, produced uh, multiple times. I mean, SpaceX, for a variety of reasons, obviously first started to land their rockets in international airspace, uh, I mean, sorry, international seawars to kind of take advantage of this loophole as well. And we thought that that'll be the, the end all solution. And we, we started pitching this to customers after we got funding. We started building our first seaplane prototype. And uh, it was really quickly, well, we, we quickly found out that a, a drone is one thing. Uh, a large drone is a little bit troublesome for the, the customers. And then thirdly, it's, it's a sea-based drone. So we were just increasing the barriers to entry for them more and more and more to the fact that the project started to become less and less believable. So um, at the same time, we actually, uh, did find out that the FAA regulations have changed uh, in 2013. And so we were figuring this out 2014, 2015. And so we didn't just catch on to it right away, but the FAA kind of did uh, allow through an FAA order for the certification of optionally piloted and um, fully autonomous uh, large scale UAVs to operate within the United States and go through type certification. And uh, I think it's FAA Order 8130, in case your listeners are interested in, in digging through it. And uh, General Atomics was one of the first ones to start taking advantage of this new paperwork. On top of that, there was an FAA rewrite uh, last year for Part 23, which really uh, lessened the burden of certification. So with those two kind of uh, keyholes opening up, we were able to, to, to comfortably switch our design uh, to, to this land-based approach is where we are today. Okay, and then so you, you said that you kind of built, built a, a seaplane prototype. Um, so did you actually go and, and go and fly that prototype? How far did you actually go down the, the seaplane route? Uh, so we built a fully functioning prototype. Uh, we, um, we were definitely humbled by the challenges in designing a seaplane aircraft. Um, 
and we should have known a little bit better, but we thought we could pull it off really quickly. And um, this whole thing on getting on step, really, the hydrodynamics portion, ate our lunch. So we spent about a year uh, playing with a smaller scale prototype when we sh when we originally budgeted in for three months to figure out the hydrodynamics. And so, uh, believe it or not, even like with this RC prototype, it was really hard to go test it because uh, there's not a lot of ponds in San Francisco that allow you to actually test RC <laughs> wow. boats. And so we had like the park rangers called on us all the time. And I remember it was stranded once in, in the middle of the pond and we had to go fish it out. So I had to jump into the cold water in the middle of a park uh, just to go fetch it out like broad daylight. I mean, people were just, <laughs> we were kind of looked like a muscle trying to figure this out. But we were finally uh, going and doing research on 1920s, 1930s texts. We were able to fish out a couple of really old textbooks that nobody's ever heard of. And uh, finally being able to solve the problem. And uh, after that, we did finish the, the, the construction of this full-scale prototype, which was about 10 meters in wingspan, 1,100 kilograms maximum gross weight. It had a Rotex 912-on engine on it. And so, uh, and it was a canard-based airplane as well. So we actually bought a long, easy project and used the wings from that because we didn't have a lot of time to build the airplane. And we designed everything forward of the wings. Uh, and anyway, so yeah, we did uh, have a little bit of a flight test program. It was enough to culminate in a short hop. We didn't want to be really ambitious with it because um, it felt like we were wasting time and money at the moment we started expanding this program out for the reasons that... Well, our customers were not really interested in the seaplane version. They were most interested in the, the land-based version. And on top of that, our design internally has evolved into more of a blended wing body instead of a canard vehicle. So we had to kind of get off the program as quickly as possible so we can really focus on the customer product um, and get that to market. Right. Makes sense. Yeah. So um, you've just mentioned some hydrodynamics um, you know, challenges for the, for the seaplane. So um, focusing on, of course, now your, your, the new prototype that you'll be building, the, the land-based drone, what are some of the you know, key challenges in designing a cargo drone? What are some of the factors that, that really drive the design? Uh, I think uh, specifically for blended wing bodies, um, they, the center of gravity, it's really far aft. So getting the wing and the the engines as well as balancing with the fuselage is very challenging especially when you have such huge swings in cargo load and so the center of gravity is very far forward but at the same time very far back um and so uh it's it's you definitely it's it's a balancing act and it's very much a finesse um it's a lot easier to to definitely design a tailed airplane than a tailless airplane. And I think a blended wing body is a very challenging airplane to design. At least that's what we're learning today. Yeah, and I guess so some of the, can you describe a, a bit more some of the challenges behind a blended wing aircraft? Is it mainly just the aerodynamics or do you need special control systems to, to control the plane? What is it that makes it so difficult? Uh, sure, so um, the blended wing body, um, all of them, there's a structural challenge to it, but we eliminated that because the first product is non-pressurized. So there's a lot of pressurization challenges with it, and um, we will be moving into pressurization later on. So we kind of kicked the, the, the ball on, on solving the, the pressurization. But uh, the, the big challenges with the blender wing body are strictly in the aerodynamics and flight controls. Uh, so because the center of gravity and the aerodynamic center are so far aft, you, 
usually talking about really low static margins. And the moment you have really uh, weak static margins, longitudinal stability, you typically have to have uh, high precision, high gain control systems, which are very expensive. And so you're kind of contradicting yourself because on one hand, you're trying to design this, this low-cost airplane to compete with current FAA Part 23 vehicles. But, you know, you're starting to introduce very, very expensive flight controls uh, into, the, into the aircraft. And so the other solution is to then you really increase stability for the vehicle. But um, the moment you increase stability, you run out of elevator to trim at forward CG. So it's this this whole cat and mouse game that you play, which is a lot easier to play with, with if you have a dedicated tail, because <laughs> mm -hmm. then you can turn more knobs. But the fact that you don't have a dedicated tail, the only thing that you could really tweak is uh, the size of the elevator and then the wing position. Uh, instead of you know tweaking the tail arm and the size of the tail as you would on a normal aircraft. Right, very interesting. So I was just thinking that if you have to spend so much time or effort, you know, on, on developing an advanced control system, and you know, we're hearing more and more about that drones will be autonomous in the future. Is there some, you know, maybe uh, a silver lining here where you're spending more upfront costs on the control system, but then that allows you to perhaps integrate automation much easier afterwards? Is that the case? It is the case. So we're definitely taking an um, upfront bullet to, to move into semi-autonomous right now with this first product and then finally full autonomy later on. And uh, the first prototype that we're designing is actually going to be optionally piloted as well. So there's a dedicated cockpit, uh, cockpit excuse me, for, the, for a safety pilot inside. And the reason we, we really did that is we want to disconnect the airframe development from the autopilot development. So if you were to go to full semi-autonomous right away for first flight, it just brings the risk up uh, incredibly. Uh, and the fact that the autopilot might be behind or the airframe might be behind. So by putting the safety pilot on board, uh, we anticipate that the airframe, which is a little bit more known uh, from a schedule perspective, will be done first and we can start testing the airframe before we uh, start wrapping the autopilot inside the vehicle. Okay. Okay, so talking about the airframe, um, Nautilus is using composites to um, to manufacture their prototypes. So can you tell me about your experience of working with composites? Um, so how are you using them at the moment and how will this uh, develop in the future? Sure. So um, being in the industry for 10 years, you, you start to understand that carbon fiber parts do not become lighter than aluminum parts. <laughs> uh, it's, uh, and the reason for that is, uh, is because of certification. Uh, so the FAA is just so skeptical still about composites that the amount of margin you have to put on the part for something that's called the hot and wet condition is just, it's astronomic. And to that point, uh, they also, you know, knock the allowables down quite a bit for manufacturing uh, variants. So I've worked on numerous carbon fiber airplanes that you look at it and man, you just wish that it became aluminum really quick towards the end of the program because the way it's coming out higher than most aluminum aircraft and between the parts and everything else like that, they typically tend to be more expensive. I am an optimist though, uh, when it comes down to the final cost of the vehicle. Um, so with composite parts, the key is you can reduce the part count. And so the moment you reduce the part count, you typically reduce the touch labor. And that usually brings the manufacturing cost in production down quite a bit. Um, and so what we believe, given our history, is uh, the, the beauty with com composites, and we're doing carbon fiber, 
is we're going to have these large tools and we can build and assemble the entire vehicle in maybe six or seven pieces, six or seven very large pieces. And so what that allows us to do is definitely reduce that touch labor and, and get the final product to the point that is maybe a little bit cheaper than some of our competitors. Okay, nice. Yeah, I guess um, so here in, in my research office, we tend to say that the, the problem that you just described about all the very conservative safety factors is that basically you end up with an airplane that is black aluminum. Um, and yeah, typically uh, exactly right. the material costs are a little bit higher. Okay, so talking about the, the costs and, and reducing costs, um, uh, the, the big military drones like the, the Predator, for example, tend to cost something around, you know, $1 billion in their development. So I, I presume that you're not, you know, targeting that, um, that, that price tag for the development cost. So how are you managing um, to do the same uh, at a fraction of the cost and also the time? Sure. So uh, this goes back to the, the proof point that we've created over the last couple of years, which is our seaplane uh, prototype. And uh, so our seaplane prototype is the same size and weight as the General Atomics Predator drone. And that was a, a billion dollar program funded by the CIA and other parties. Hundreds of engineers, five years. I mean, super expensive. Uh, and so what we did is we built that airplane in 14 months with a team of five and less than a million dollars. So the, the key to that astronomic difference in cost and time development as well as personnel is uh, we understood that it doesn't have to be perfect the first time around. So we focused a lot on um, production or rapid prototyping with wet composite layups and fiberglass. So it's something that kind of came out of the, the marine environment. So boats, one-off boats, we built on foam tooling, uh, very simple stuff. And so we, that has been adapted primarily through Burt Rutan and scale composites in the 1970s to aircraft. And uh, it makes for a very uh, cheap way to build airplanes. Um, it's very time intensive, but one of the advantages we had as a startup is, you know, you don't pay each other too much and you have all the time in the world almost because you can work seven days a week. Mm -hmm. So we use that, that time factor as an advantage, bringing the material costs down um, and making sure that, well, understanding that there's going to be you know, deviations in, in, in everything. So frames wouldn't fit correctly. Um, you know, the plies are not going to be perfect. Uh, there's going to be maybe a crooked wing a little bit somewhere here and there, but that was enough for us to actually show a proof point. Okay, great. Um, so once you've, um, you know, you've got a, a final product that you're, that you'll be flying, how do you intend to uh, run the business? Will you just be making these airplanes for your customers or will FedEx, for example, be buying these drones? How do you think the, the business model will look like? Sure. So we started out uh, thinking that we're going to be actually operating these vehicles. Um, and so we look more like an airline with an innovative product, so more like a SpaceX uh, type of approach. But as we started talking to our customers, um, there have been some interest in, in having us operate the vehicles, but the overwhelming kind of answer was that most um, cargo airlines want to operate the vehicles themselves. And so at that point, we shifted our business model to look more like a Boeing. And also something that's very important is, you know, the cost of these programs is very large. And uh, me bringing letters of intent from airlines saying or freight forwarders that they're going to ship, you know, 250,000 tons of cargo with us per year, it doesn't get cash rolling into the door. 
So with that type of service-based model, it kind of started to look a little bit weaker as we started exploring that. And uh, when we shifted into the Boeing business model, what we learned really quickly is that customers are willing to put down deposits on the vehicles. So as we talk about the funding for a development program, including certification, we could actually realize revenue and help use the customer's money uh, to pay for, for a portion of the program. And on top of that, it also showed to venture capitalists that cash is starting to roll in the door, people are willing to pay for this vehicle, and so it created the larger conviction with our funding. Okay, yeah, I think sometimes you know, also with the EV toll space, all of these kind of commercial drone projects are, you know, entirely new. So you're breaking new ground. And I guess the business model will probably evolve to, yeah, I guess at some point having the, the, the most efficient one just kind of um, just evolve through different projects, you know, um, developing all over the world. Yeah, exactly. I mean, to be frank, I've had an immense pressure from my VCs here in the Valley to, to switch to the service-based model again, but they understand both perspectives. It's just out of the entire business stack, the one thing they do understand is a service-based business. Mm -hmm. So that's why they really grasp onto that. Um, and so, I'm, yeah, I mean, we're still, uh, there's a, the famous saying here, what is it, strong convictions loosely held, um, famous saying by a venture capitalist here. So right now we have a strong conviction um, that we believe we should look more like a Boeing, but if something changes, then yeah, we will definitely be exploring something else. Yeah, great. Okay, so what is the current status of the of the project and how uh, it does the near-term future look like? Um, well, I think what's really fascinating for us is we, we're, we seem to be the farthest ahead in the car large cargo UAV space. Uh, and... I think, you know, talking with our customers and, and investors, we, we are like the number one company really focused on, on, on getting this done. So uh, we're, we're, the trajectory in the, um, is, is very aggressive for the company. We intend to fly this prototype in two years. We have a wind tunnel test scheduled uh, next month in San Diego. Um, we already have a couple of billion in letters of intent. Uh, signed already with certain airlines. So we're starting to see that the customers and the technology are coming along pretty well. I think the next step for us is really to show that, that this thing can fly. And I think in two years time, this will be one of the first and only maybe blended wing bodies, a full scale blended wing body that actually has flown. So I, I think it'll be very exciting for me not to be, you know, not only to focus on the autonomy portion, but also show, you know, a blended wing body could it, you know, in a full scale can be not as expensive as people think, and it has all sorts of these advantages as well. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, the autonomy question, so will you be developing um, a product first that is piloted and you will then switch to autonomy, or, or how does that um, roadmap look like? Sure. Uh, we intend to certify uh, with autonomy. So uh, that, is, that is definitely the plan. Um, we tend to see that some customers are willing to take risks uh, because the demand is so high for these vehicles uh, overseas. So what might happen is we'll, we'll likely do a couple of demonstrator flights with customers overseas um, first, maybe in the Asia region. And then um, after we get a couple of uh, maybe 50 flight hours under our belts, um, prove out customer traction, that's when we can go back to the United States and, and you know make any last minute tweaks in operation before we commit to final certification. But yeah, we're we're going fully autonomous right away.
Great. I mean, it sounds all very promising, and I'm looking forward to um, yeah to following you in the next couple of years. So, um, how can listeners stay up to date with everything that Nautilus is doing? Sure. So uh, you can visit us on the line www.nautilus.co. Um, there's a couple of positions open, and we're always interested uh, in in finding talent. Um, all over the world. We, we like to work with, with very small teams, uh, but just very passionate individuals. I think that's what really drives a startup. So definitely look and apply uh, if you think you're a fit with us. And then um, I think there's a newsletter also at the very bottom that they can sign up and get regular updates on us as well. Yeah, and as far as I'm aware, a lot of young grads listen uh, to this podcast. So if you guys are currently tuning in, then absolutely, um, you know, send Nautilus your application, um, and um, I'm sure it'll be a be a be a great company to work for. So uh, Alexei, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. It was a it was a great pleasure to speak to you. Thank you so much, yeah, Rainer. If you'd like to learn more about Nautilus, then head over to aerospaceengineeringblog.com forward slash podcast where you'll find show notes about everything we discussed in today's episode. And if you enjoy the Airspace Engineering Podcast, then there are a number of ways you can support it. You can leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you're tuning in. You can share on social media with your friends and family, or you can support the podcast directly on Patreon. And with that, thank you very much for listening and talk to you next time.